welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I will be your host. This is episode 31. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they provided training from initial private through CFI Glider and entry level through advanced aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. On this episode, we head to Arizona and talk to Gary Kemp, who has flown gliders for over 40 years alongside some of the great pioneers of soaring. He was the competition pilot before electronic varios, and on one flight, he flew 500K with no vario at all. He has around 4,000 hours in the cockpit. He was one of the co-founders of a soaring club in Parowan, Utah, and also helped start the Central California Soaring Club's annual spring contest and flew the first 1,000K in the state of Utah. Gary also shares with us some of his most memorable flights soaring the Great Southwest and what it has taught him about soaring and flying safe. Gary also has written a book on soaring called Finish Every Task. Hello, Gary. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. Thank you. I enjoy being on here, and we're sitting right now in the middle of a thunderstorm, actually, outside. (laughs) Well, then it's not a good time to fly, so you're not missing out on anything. No, I'm missing out on anything now. When did your aviation story get started? You know, I I was thinking back on that because I've I've listened to your podcast, and I knew you were probably asked that question, but I I guess my first interest in aviation began when I uh, was about nine years old, and, and that was right after the World War II. And went and visited with my uncle, and, and his older daughter, a little older than me, uh, had a, a bunch of World War II fighter plane models in her bedroom. And I really thought those were unique, and so I had a lot of fun with looking at them and playing with them, and I was about nine years old. And from then, I, I kind of got into model plane building. My dad had built a model rubber band model airplanes as a kid and an adult and designed some, and he had his plans, and I built his copy of his old airplane and, and several other models as I went along. And then I remember building a a model of a uh, Bolas Albatross glider, and never thinking that people really flew them. But I could hook a, a piece of rope or piece of uh, thread onto it, really, and and tow it up and and let it go, and it'll fly around a little bit and glide down. So all of that kind of led me into about uh, 1967, when I happened to catch uh, the wonderful world of on the wonderful world of color a movie or a video of. Uh, Boy Who Flew with Condors. And I thought, man, that really looks, I, I could do that. That kid's only 16. I could probably do that. I was 30 years old at the time. So uh, fortunately, I happened to live in the Los Angeles area. And back when there were phone books, some people probably don't even know what those are, but I looked up soaring in the phone book, and the Soaring Society of America was based at, in Santa Monica at the time. And so I got their phone number, and I called them up. I said, hey, where can I do this? And they uh, gave me a number of places, and one of them was Elsinore, Lake Elsinore in Southern California. Went down there and took a ride, and then a year later started into uh, learning how to fly glider and soloing. So that's kind of the beginning. What did you start flying? What was the first glider? You know, the, the first glider I took a ride in was a, an old World War II glider, an LK-10A. And uh, I took one ride in that, and I was hooked pretty much, but 
we were expecting to adopt a baby within the month of, or two after I took that ride. And my wife said, no, you're not going to do it now. And I kind of uh, reluctantly agreed that we'd put it off for a year. And then I uh, went back uh, into it, and uh, they had moved the operation uh, from Elsinore to a little town in California called Paris, and they were flying uh, 233. And that's when oh, I nice. first tra- trained in, yeah. And quickly shifted from once I soloed into a 126, and I flew a 232 a lot uh, when I started, and ultimately bought a in a partnership with three other guys a 134 when it first came out. So that's what I got into. <laughs> Very nice. The the good old standard Schweitzer gliders. Yeah, the 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 Schweitzer pathway to flying gliders. Yeah. Stood me in, in good set. I bought a 134, and and then eventually bought all the partners out and. And then uh, I, I ended up buying a Schweitzer 135. That was my first two gliders. <laughs> now, how was the Schweitzer 135 compared to like the 126? Well, it, it was my, I, I consider it a racing glider. Of course, the, the glass mob, uh, you know, they're flying, flying labels and, and uh, standard uh, Cirrus and so on. Didn't, didn't think very much of it. Uh, however, uh, it, it was, uh, for me, it was a racing glider. It was so much better than the 232 and 126. That I thought, boy, this is really something. And I and I uh, did my diamond, uh, all my badges, my diamond badges in that uh, in that glider. So I thought it was pretty good. It was the first glider I flew that that had uh, 80. I think it was 80 degree flaps. Didn't have spoilers, so I had to learn how to fly a flap glider, and and that was kind of an experience too. Never having been in one. Now, for those that don't know what the diamond is, could you tell me what that involved? The three diamond badge, uh, it goes in a progress from a silver badge to a gold badge to a diamond, and and ultimately you you fly further and longer and higher, basically. And the in the diamond badge, the three diamond badge was a 500 kilometer flight uh, and an altitude gain of let's see five 500 let's see I can't remember it's 16,404 feet I know what the, that is, and then also uh, a flight of uh, 300 kilometers to a, a goal. You have to say, I'm going to fly that beforehand and then fly that distance. Actually, I did that one in my 134, and the other two flights I did in the 135. Oh, very nice. So where did you go from there? Did you start getting into well, some competition? Yeah, I, I actually, <laughs> I started competition really early. I, I always figured, like, the guy that taught me how to fly was a, a man by the name of Carl Jessup. And Carl was a gold badge pilot, and, and he, so he'd fl- flown cross-country, and I got kind of interested in that, and I always had the feeling that if I could stay up, I could go someplace. And so I started flying distances, and almost immediately, uh, I became connected with uh, the racing crowd. I went out to El Mirage, which is one of the old-time uh, racing sites uh, where a lot of the top pilots in Southern California and other areas would come down there to fly, because it was in the high desert, and you get some really high speeds and you fly long distances and, and competition was really the thing to do. So I actually started flying competition in my 134 almost right away. I belonged to a club there that called the S3C, which is the Southern California Competition Club. And their goal was to develop uh, administration for flying contests and uh, develop uh, different methods of identifying turn points. In fact, they came up with the the turn point uh, uh, cameras and, and taking photographs. Uh, we were right on the edge of that development. Before that, it was you had to get down low enough to uh, identify 
uh, panels on a turn point. You'd have to go down there and send people out and they put up panels and, and they'd have different configurations of those panels at different times of the day. And so you'd identify that. And, but then they went into, uh, of course, photographing the turn points. And, and so I uh, started doing that. And actually, <laughs> I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything. And, and uh, I had, we had a little S3C contest and Ross Brieglib and, and some of the, and Al Leffler and Bill Ivins and some of the big name soaring planets back then were flying in it. And I happened to get in a thermal and just drifted downwind until it quit and landed and nobody else left the field. So I won. So that that helped me, that helped me <laughs> awesome. in the competition. Yeah. I didn't know any better. I just kind of went out there and drifted around. And and so then I I think I I entered a I entered a regional competition in El Mirage, and I remember those. I first day I went out and flew right into the through the shear into the marine air and landed 35 miles away, and that was my first day. The next day I I improved upon that a little bit and flew a couple hundred miles and. And uh, so then I, I almost immediately, I flew in, in a, let me think, it was 1971, I believe, and I flew in a national, uh, a standard class national city freight of Washington. And there were 38 pilots, and I finished 28th out of the 38. And there was, only, there was I remember uh, Paul Schweitzer, not junior, but Paul Schweitzer's nephew, uh, a younger Schweitzer, he had a 134 with a retractable gear. And I thought that was pretty high tech because I had a fixed gear. And uh, I remember Nelson Funston, he was flying there, and Rudy Alleman. And uh, Nelson had a K6, Rudy had a LaBelle, and Ray Gimme was there, and some of the other top pilots of the day were flying in that contest. And so uh, I think I landed every place you could probably land. Uh, my first contest flight was out to the east and then back up to the north of ways, and I think it was 250 plus miles, and I'd never flown that far. And I made about 175 and landed. So. I was, I was fortunate to finish as high as I did, uh, but wow. it went, went on from there. You know, I got to fly. The next year, I went down to Marfa, Texas and flew in the 72 in the, in the Standard Nationals, and uh, I got to fly with some of the top names and soaring, and, and I finished 38 out of, out of 62. So I actually was the only metal airplane in the contest. I actually had people laugh at me, and, but I beat 24 of them, so... <laughs> Got even. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> laughing. Yeah, they weren't laughing at the end. <laughs> so that's where it all started. So you did a thousand K, the first one evidently in Utah, correct? Right, right. I had been looking at a thousand K and and, uh, and soaring conditions in the high basin, the desert high basin area, and uh, then I uh, uh, had developed an idea that I was thinking that that we'd get west winds in the day, and that would come up against the Pavant Range, which sits along the valley along uh, Interstate uh, 15, I guess. I think it's 15. And it runs all the way that length of that whole area. There's 160 miles of mountain range. And I thought that'd be a great place to go and make some long flights and fly some record flying because there's virtually nothing that had been up to, done up to that time in Utah. There was a few small state records. And and there had never been a – in fact, there had never been a – I don't think there had ever been a diamond flight out of that. I could be wrong on that, but – uh, developed a, a plan to advertise a camp up there, basically, and we uh, got two tow pilots that agreed to come along. We pay their room and board and flight uh, flight time up and back, and then of course pay them for the tows. and And we had about I think 15 pilots that went up there that first year. Uh, we were originally going to go to Cedar City, and it, it turned out they were pretty inhospitable. And uh, so we went the next uh, uh, airport up the road, which is Pair One, and they were great. They just accepted us wholeheartedly, and that was in 1991, and they're still flying 
uh, every year I think the Motor Glider Association goes up there and has a contest. So still going on. <laughs> now you started a soaring club in Central California, right? Yeah, I was I was one of the the primaries in starting that club. There was there was about I can remember four or probably others. Or, a guy by the name of Ron Light was a principal. He was initial co-pilot. And uh, there was a guy by the name of Bill Salzman and Mario Casina and I. We kind of started that Central California Soaring Club out of Tulare, California. And uh, and basically, I was I was uh, kind of uh, looking for a place to fly a contest closer to our home. And so uh, we sponsored a springtime contest and invited people. In the first year, we had six people, and I won. <laughs> so Nice. I was about 1973, I think, 72, 73, somewhere in there. And I was flying the 134 still then, and that's before I bought the 135. So uh, we started that contest, and it's still going on today. They have a spring contest every, every year. They moved over to uh, to Avenal, and they bought that airport at Avenal, which is right adjacent to the Coast Range, and they do a lot of lights out of there, a lot of flying in that area now. A lot of fun. <laughs> there was no flight computers. There's no electronic barriers. Oh, gosh, You're just no. flying. <laughs> stick and rudder and you're flying with something called a pellet vario what is that yeah yeah a, p- a pellet vario has a, a pitot tube it's, it's air driven and then it has a little thermos bottle it's a captured air mask and and uh, and the difference difference in pressure between the pitot and that captured air mask basically makes a pellet uh, go up if you're in rising air and it's a green pellet and then a red pellet will go up if you're in descending air. That was the only instrumentation we had in so far as a variometer concerned. Of course, we had, we had radios and altimeter and airspeed and so on. But uh, that was there was no electronic instrumentation at all uh, early on. It was kind of see the pants and, and, and be real sensitive to what was going on around you. And I, I think of that. I remember later on when we were flying at Parowan, of course, it was really good conditions, but I had a, a situation where I'd, I'd had my uh, glider being worked on by John Sinclair, and th- there it turned out that a, a leaf cutter beetle had, had packed a bunch of leaves into my my uh, my Braunschweig tube, my where my tube went in the tail, and so it, it didn't work. So I had no varios at all for two flights, and one flight I did 500 kilometers with no vario. And, wow. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's just because I learned basically to fly with something that made you really, really rely on the seat of your pants. So that was kind of a fun experience. And then, of course, once once we got uh, an audio variometer, I felt like it died and gone to heaven because you didn't have to look at anything to see if you're going up. You could hear it. Right. <laughs> that was pretty fantastic. <laughs> now, you wrote a book. It was called Finish Every Task. Yeah, right. finish finish every task. The subtitles the making of a competition glider pilot. Really, it takes it takes me. Uh, uh, from beginning life, really, into in competition of various kinds. I was a surfer for 10 years. I built surfboards and did a lot of surfing. And so that kind of got me into kind of nature and, and riding the wave and, and ocean as opposed to the air, airplanes and air the gliders. And it uh, tells a little bit about my life and athletics. I was a, I was a, an all-conference tackle in college and, and uh, had a lot of fun in that. And then gradually... <clears throat> takes us into into my flying experience. So it really chronicles uh, uh, flying and gliders from solo on up into the national competition level. If we want to get that book, could, could we get a hold of a copy of that? Yeah, it's 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 on Amazon, and you just do a search under Gary Kemp, finish every task, and you'll find it. The hard copy is pretty expensive, so most people just get a an e copy, you know, an e book, and uh, that's only seven dollars and fifty cents. So it really it really takes it from 
as John Sinclair, he wrote a little uh, blurb for it, and he says, uh, and I'll quote it, when it was just you, a mid-performance oven wood or metal glider, a few steam gauges and a playground in the sky. And that talks about us talking about soaring and how he, how he would fly and how, we, how he learned, basically, when he was uh, 14 years old. <laughs> and I don't know if you know John or not, but uh, John's, a, well, he was an 18-meter champion this year out of, out of Hobbs. So he's uh, right up there flying a JS-1, I think, now. Now, are you currently still flying at all? No, I, I when I started flying, uh, I was 30 years old, and I thought, I, and I'd seen old old men fly, and I'm an old man now, I'm 82. I didn't want to reach the point where uh, my decision-making skills were handicapped by my age. I didn't want some young uh, guy come up and tap me on the shoulder and, and say that, uh, gosh, you may need to take a check ride with me. And uh, so when I was when I was uh, 30, I decided when I started playing, I made a goal. I said, I'm going to fly until I'm 70. And uh, so when I was 70, I retired <laughs> from flying. And then a part of that, too, I think, you know, uh, my wife crewed for me for years and years and supported my my addiction, as she calls it, for years and years. And, and uh, she deserved the time off, too. <laughs> So that was a part of it. I miss it. You know, I miss it every time I look at the queues forming up in streets over my house out here in Arizona. <laughs> you have all those memories. Quite I a few. Do. Yeah, we had some fun. <laughs> Speaking of memories, if you could pick one of those flights out of your logbook, and there's a lot of them, but if you could pick one, what would it be? You know, I, I, that's another question I've seen you ask for. So I've been I've been thinking about that. And there were a lot of them. <laughs> there were a lot of them. But I, can, I remember one that was unique, not necessarily for the flight itself, but for the way it was set up. Um, I'd gone down to, uh, we lived up in the Central Valley at the time in California. I was a principal of a high school, a little, a little high school in a little town called Corcoran. And so our, our really closest uh, big area for flying was either Tehachapi or El Mraz. So I frequently went down to El Mraz and went flying with with some of the top pilots in the country. I mean, uh, Paul Bickle and, and the Brigalibs and Al Leffler and some of the others were flying down there. And they were great mentors and would taught me a lot about flying. And so I went down there one day. It was on, actually it was uh, Labor Day weekend uh, in 1975. And uh, I'm, I'm rushing, and, and I'm, I get there, and I hear these guys talking about a race. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, we've, we've got a race that we're set up to fly to Estrella. And uh, that's, a, that's a little uh, glider port east of, uh, or south and east of Phoenix. And it's a, it's a, we're going to race down there. And uh, we're going to take the, the, the winners are going to be the person who flies the fastest over any one of the three days. In other words, you could, you could take off and you could, you could fly to, uh, to uh, Estrella on any one of the three days. And so um, they, uh, I thought, well, that, that sounds like a, a pretty good, uh, pretty good flight to make. And so I, I think I'd like to do that. And it was, it was 329 miles, and I'd done, I'd done diamond distance before. And I thought, well, I'm going to give that a shot. I'd like to do this. I'm rushing around getting things ready to go and getting ready to take off, and, and it's getting light. And, and my wife says, well, what are, you, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to race to, to Australia. She looks at me, she says, well, good, I hope you get there, and then I hope you make it back, because I'm not driving to Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of fumbled with it, I said, oh, okay, uh, I guess that's all right, I, 
I, I guess I'll do that. And she said, okay. And uh, so I remember I towed off at 1.30, and it's, it's 329 miles. It's a little late, actually. And I've had friends of mine who saw me take off. And they'd, well, you got off tow and just headed east as fast as you could go. But I don't think it was quite like that. But I uh, followed the mountain ranges. I had flown in Australia before, and I'd, I had uh, flown to uh, from El Mirage to Parker, Arizona for my uh, – diamond goal and uh, so i kind of knew some of the intricacies i was a little concerned about uh blythe it's a it's the colorado river valley and i was concerned that there might be uh not enough lift across there and and uh i had actually flown uh when i went down to uh marfa i'd flown and landed at quartzsite which is just across the colorado river outside of blythe the next city in arizona and so i was familiar somewhat with the area and and I wasn't feeling too uncomfortable, so I headed down there, and I got there about five-hour flight, I think. And and uh, as I came into Australia about this time of year, actually, uh, I look up and I see what's called a haboob. I don't know if you've seen a, know what that is or not, but it's basically it's a dust storm. It's after a an Arabic word that talks about dust storm, and a huge wall of dust coming across the Australia mountains right next to the airport. And uh, actually, I saw two. Uh, fighter jets who based out of the loop fly into it. And I kind of thought that was curious. And anyway, I landed and uh, they put me in a hangar and I was just fine. So I called my wife and I said, well, I'm, I've, I've made it. I'm okay. And she said, well, I'm, I'm going home. I'm going back up to Corcoran. And, and when you fly back, uh, if you make it, if you don't fly on too far out, when you come back, uh, Walt and John Seaborn, who are friends of ours, are here at, at Elmrod's and they'll come and get you when you land out. And I said, okay, well, that's good. I'll, <laughs> I'll do that. So Woke up the next morning and gosh, it didn't look really good. And uh, that was back in the days before some of the fancy weather prognostications. And if you want to look out, know how the flying is, you looked out the window and said, "Well, like it looks like a good day." So uh, Saturday did not look like a good day. And I think I had all the five dollars in my pocket when I came down there. No change of clothes, nothing else. And I slept on the floor of the of the, uh, of the line shack there for. Uh, the first night and the second night a bunch of other people flew in and, and they got a motel room they let me sleep on their floor and so Sunday came or Monday came and I was working I had to get back to work on uh, it was Memorial Day and I had to get back to work and uh, the, the water pump went down and they didn't have any water and I gosh I knew that I was going into a west wind and so I got up real early in the morning and I and I and I snuck over to their swimming pool and filled up my uh, water tanks from the swimming pool on the glider. And uh, fortunately, I did, because as I as I took off that day, uh, I remember being concerned I wouldn't get far enough and Walt and John wouldn't come and get me. But uh, it took me an, it took me three hours to get to uh, to Blythe. And that's only 120 miles. That's not very good speed. And so, but I got to Blythe and it really picked up good and I was able to go on down. And so I get down to, to Apple Valley, which is about 18 miles east of uh, El Mirage. And, and I had a, I had uh, about 3,000 feet, but I just was concerned about, uh, I hadn't come into El Mirage that late in the day from that direction. So I, I landed at, uh, at Apple Valley and it was 18 miles from El Mirage and close enough for Walton John to come and get me. And I remember uh, Danny Pearson, I don't know if you heard his name, but he was a, he was he flew in the Smirnoff and and was quite a well-known pilot. He was out and he came in. He flew in on on Sunday, but I ended up being third on the on the of the people who flew the for third fastest speed. And uh, Ted Ted Schertzinger, who ran Elmrush for a while, he flew Oz for a long time. He 
he flew all the way out there and then flew all the way back. And he was behind me coming back. He's, he got, he said, well, what can you tell me? I said, well, you need to get high in the shear at Big Bear. You should make it in all right. And he did. But he used to, every time he saw me from then on, he said how brave I was to be able to fly all that distance without a crew. And my response was, how many miles did you put on your crew car, Ted? He said, a thousand miles. I said, I put on 36. He said, I'm not brave, I'm just cheap. <laughs> so that was the flight. <laughs> Very cool. If I could ask you, you know, as a glider pilot myself and, and learning, how do you center a thermal? Do you have any any secrets you could tell us? You know, I, I, I had, of course, you can imagine, I had a lot of experience because uh, centering the thermals is key to going fast. And, and uh, the, the quicker you center them, the more effective you are in making use of the strength of the thermal. And so it's really crucial. So I would, uh, as I thermal, like, like most everybody else, I would... Uh, uh, when I hit the strength of the thermal, I'd flatten out my turn and head into the strength and then tighten it up. I got onto the edge of it. And so that way, uh, each time around, I was better I was able to analyze uh, where the strength of the thermal w- would be. And I'd flatten out and, and then crank it back in. And so that was that was my technique in, in finding the center of the thermal. And uh, I went flying here about three years ago in, a, in an ash uh, 25 with uh, Dale Bush. And he had a glass cockpit. He had a clear nav, you know, and. And, and I was fascinated with that thing because when you make one turn, it shows you where the lift in the, in the, in the sink was. And so you had a graphic representation of where the thermal was. And I thought, boy, that makes centering the thermal really a lot easier than it was when I uh, didn't have that uh, facility. <laughs> yeah, I haven't used any of those. Flying the 126 and doing the old-fashioned way of finding a thermal and trying to well, center the, it. So. The, one to, uh, the, one, yeah, the 126 was, was great because it was small. And even though the wings were short, I remember it, you know, feeling really kind of sporty, you know, and, and, and it would respond really quickly so that uh, it was really quite different when I was, my, my last glider was a Nimbus 3. So you can imagine that's, that's almost three times, well, not quite. I think the, I think the uh, glider ratio of 126 is about one, uh, 23 to 1, as I can remember, and, and the, the, uh, the Nimbus is 60 to 1, so <laughs> quite a bit yeah, of difference. Right. So, so I was yeah. really able to, to, to center a thermal, thermal quicker and faster, I think, in the 126. Because what, with a glider, with the, the huge wingspan and the adverse yaw, you had to, when I started into a thermal, I, had, I would kick the upper rudder to, to uh, get out of the adverse yaw so I could come back in and circle in the thermal correctly. And so I had some real different techniques that I use in the big wing glider uh, as opposed to the shorter wing. Uh, Quite a a difference. (laughs) Gary, if you could give some advice to someone not only to be a better pilot, but to be a safer pilot, what would you have to say to them? You you know, I've given that a lot of thought over the years because I didn't want to end up killing myself. And I I think about some of the things that I did and got away with, you know, that, that, uh, that caused me to change my behavior. One of the things I learned, I quit doing high-speed passes because there's no margin for error on high-speed passes. You make a mistake and you're, you're in bad trouble. So I quit doing those. And then the other thing that I was very conscious of is thermaling low. Uh, I, I did some really incredible low saves that I quit doing uh, because I, there was no margin for error. So, so those two things were really important. And then always 
be, and then especially this was true with, with uh, hyperperge gliders, you had to be ahead of the glider. You couldn't be behind what was happening because what was really going to happen was so far ahead of what you were doing that you had to be aware of that. And uh, I remember one instance where we had a, a task that when we went from uh, Minden down to Lone Pine, back to Basalt and back, and, and my last leg was... Uh, I averaged over 100 miles an hour, but my total flight was only 86 miles an hour, and I was in 30th place. And uh, I think Carl Streetick won that day with 105 miles an hour in a in a 15 meter glider. And when I got back, I went through the the fin- we had a finish gate at that time. I went through the finish gate, and, and of course you're coming through fast. Probably you haven't calculated your glide angle better, good enough. And I, and and we, I had a, and it was strong strong conditions, and so I was probably too high and too fast. And so when I pulled up. Uh, I, I actually, I'm sure I grayed out or blacked out. I, I, I can't remember anything after going through the gate until I was about 10 feet above the ground, perpendicular to the ground. And, oh. and I, I was uh, perpendicular to the runway, uh, uh, perpendicular to the runway, 10 feet above the ground. I didn't mean to say perpendicular to the ground, <laughs> perpendicular to the runway. And so I, I thought, well, I, I can't bank, I can't lower the wing because I'm going to drag it. And so I kind of slightly rudded around. My wing dropped kind of a little bit, and I rudded it around, and my wing hit a piece of sagebrush uh, on the right tip, and I plopped down on the runway, and my friend Mario, who was there, came out and said, what the heck were you doing? I said, I don't have a clue. I don't remember a thing. And so as I analyzed that situation later on, I think that I was I was I I had a problem with uh, uh, G-forces as I came through the gate, the second problem was uh, it was it was hot. It was really hot, and I think I had some fatigue problems, and then uh, uh, dehydration. I hadn't uh, had enough water on board to to drink enough, and so I made sure I corrected all those those difficulties later on. So I, I, I you, you just can't you can't leave anything to chance, and and that goes from the moment of putting the glider together to the time you begin to take off, and then while you're in the flight mode, you're thinking ahead of the aircraft, you're ahead of everything, you make sure that you've considered all aspects of what can go wrong, because they probably will. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one one rigging experience I had, or I had a couple of them, but I'll tell you one that uh, that almost killed me. And uh, I remember, this, this goes along the lines of don't let yourself be distracted when putting the glider together. I was putting the guy, I, I, I often did this when I flew alone out of uh, uh, Orland when I was up there with the uh, Chico Club and uh, we'd fly uh, fly a load off and I'd have to put a glider together off and I had my son with me on this particular occasion and I, I again I had had uh, the aircraft up at John Sinclair's uh, doing some work on it and um, he had made me a little uh, device with uh, five fingers uh, or uh, actually slipped over my uh, elevator push rod and it said I had written on it five pins and I thought well, that's a cool little deal because because uh, I have five pins that I have to make sure are hooked up in safety. My my ailerons, both ailerons and and both uh, speed brake or dive brakes, and my elevator push rod. And I and I took it off the elevator push rod and I took it over to my son Tom and I said, "Hey, look at this, Tom! Isn't this a cool little mnemonic device to remember to hook everything up?" He said, "Yeah, that's really neat." And and guess what? <laughs> I didn't hook up the elevator push rod and oh, got my. it. Got in the airplane without the elevator hooked up. I had a center of gravity uh, tow hook on my Pegasus at the time. And as soon as I got flying speed, the aircraft kited. And I knew what had happened immediately. I reached for the release and pulled it. Of course, I'm nose heavy now, and my nose pitches over. And I, and I said, well, all I can do is keep the wings level. 
I caromed off the runway. They, it hit the uh, the fuselage just ahead of the wheel. It kind of bounced off. It didn't do any damage. I knew immediately what I'd done. Nobody else did. I got out and I uh, hooked up the elevator and uh, pinned safety and uh, hooked up the tow rope and went flying. And uh, I, I know at least three people who have died because they did not hook up that elevator. And I was, I was just um, blind luck that I was able to overcome that problem. So when you hook up aircraft, make sure you uh, are not interrupted. And secondly, obviously, I didn't do a uh, control check and uh, because I would have found it on a control check. And uh, so th all those things, uh, you know, you, you look at things that'll, that'll keep you alive uh, after and through a flight. And those are some of the things I found during the years. Gary, that's some great advice for sure. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Even after 12 years of retirement, I, I still love to talk about it. <laughs> I always love to talk about aviation, and I'm sure when I get that age, I'll still be enjoying it. I'm sure you will. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Soaring the Sky. To see pictures of Gary and some of the gliders he flew, you can go to our website, soaringthesky.com. And while you're online, some of you have also asked about coffee mugs you've seen on Instagram and Facebook that I've had on there. Some of you have been asking about how to get those. So I went ahead and set up something on Redbubble. So if you go to redbubble.com, just like it sounds, you can search Soaring the Sky and made it available there so you can pick up a t-shirt or a coffee mug, something to spread the word about the podcast. Greatly appreciate that. And while you're online... As always, to find your local club in your area where you can take your first discovery flight, you can log on to ssa.org. We hope you join us next time for another great guest right here on Soaring the Skies.